Delia Efron is a best-selling author and screenwriter. She has written novels including The Lion is In and Hanging Up, humor books for all ages including How to Eat Like a Child and Do I Have to Say Hello, and nonfiction, most recently Sister, Mother, Husband, Dog. Her films include You've Got Mail, The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, Hanging Up, and Michael. Her journalism has appeared in the New York Times, The Oprah Magazine, Vogue, and Vanity Fair. Her hit play, Love, Loss, and What I Wore, ran for more than two years off-Broadway and has been performed all over the world. Delia Efron, welcome to The Creative Process. Well, I'm happy to be here. So I'm, um, we're speaking, actually we're just discussing a little bit before um, we began here. I, this is recording this at the time of coronavirus and all the strain. I mean, you're someone who's who's known for your your books as well as your um, your screenplays. Um, you know the romantic comedies um, and um, and of course, which belie you know very serious subjects as well, uh, but always with a slight touch. But where are you finding inspiration these days? Oh my goodness. Uh, well, <laughs> I find that not being able to, you know, go out of this, the, I just, I live in Greenwich Village yeah. uh, in New York City, and I love where I live. Mm-hmm. I mean, whenever I've been unhappy or, you know, I've always known that the city's there for me, and I get to walk outside, and, um, you know, it's just, I find that not being, I mean, I'm 75 now, I'm not really... Um, I've survived major illnesses, and so I definitely am, you know, a vulnerable candidate for this illness. So I haven't been out in months, wow. and I, I get less done than ever mm-hmm. because, you know, I wake up around 10 now. I used to get up at 8. You know, yeah. I hang around at about 3 o'clock after working out mm-hmm. and eating lunch. I go to work, mm-hmm. and... Uh, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that I love being in in my office mm-hmm. alone with my own thoughts. I mean, it's it's it turns out to be fairly good preparation for this kind of awful thing, you know. But I don't think this there's too much anxiety and fear and there's too much that I love my friends. I miss everyone so much. Yeah. It's it's hard. It's hard to it doesn't make you concentrate better. It makes you concentrate less to take to take your world away. Yeah, and I imagine, you know, particularly for your your screenplays and your books, which have really also been, you know, romantic comedies, but also love letters to friendship and sisterhood, mm-hmm. and also love letters to cities, say, you know, um, Life in New York or other cities where um, your um, books have been set or your works, creative works mm-hmm. have been set. So you need that stimulus in some way, or even overhearing something at the bakery, or all these rituals that accumulate to. Um, they yeah. really do. They they really do. So um, you know, it's. I think it's. I'm sure there's going to be a ton of people producing, you know, COVID diaries and things, mm-hmm. but I won't be one of them. Um, I heard, yeah, because of cinematographers, I was doing some of their interviews. I think yeah. some of them are covertly, ta- you know, have been f- filming mm-hmm. some of the, you know, that you get some scenery shots that you can't normally get. But um, yeah, that's a, that's a different thing. I was so happy. As I, I'm in Paris, and I imagine I I don't know what's in New York at the moment. Is it still on lockdown or? Yes, it is on lockdown, and I mean, I've only actually, truly, I've only left this house once in 
over two months. And, you know, my favorite restaurant on my block, which I consider to be, you know, the it's just this wonderful place. And I, mm-hmm. It's always there. It's open. It's mm-hmm. great. It's open late. Um, you know, it's boarded up. Yeah. Because they're worried about looters. Um, not that there have been any yet, but, you know, it's just, you know, it's very sad to see, to not know. Like this morning I called up the cleaners. Mm-hmm to see if they were open again because mm-hmm. people are starting to and I you know the guy answered the phone I absolutely love these you know in your neighborhood you love the people that run the stores that you go to all the time mm-hmm. and you know I was so happy that nobody was sick there and I so you know it was just and they said that you know they were going to reopen and I was so I was so relieved because I thought suppose things are going to go away favorite mm-hmm. things are going to go away yeah I think that one thing it it's it, it's sad and I don't mean to focus on this too much but I think that it's been a reminder of those things that we really all those small things that we really cherish and mm-hmm. are really yeah. part of our lives um, that we take for granted often um, because we thought that we could bring it all online and that that relates to some um, of your um, the subject matter that you know some of I'm thinking of you got mail or whatever that everything could be transitioned to some kind of like replaced by a new technology or um the, you know, but there's there's a human contact, there's a human story that's important to retain. Oh my goodness! Just hanging out with a girlfriend for three hours in a coffee shop, mm. you know, talking about every single thing in the universe. That's and and it, it feeds your imagination. I think everybody's just really suffering right now, and more in to you know, greater and less degrees. I certainly have a nice place to live, so I'm very grateful for it. Mm. You know. We are, you know, we like to interact. At least mm-hmm. I do. And how are your, um, your, your, how's your dog? Is I, I, because I know if you haven't been walking, I don't know. Um, so how do you keep this <laughs> essential part of your life, isn't it? Yeah, no, my, my dog, yeah. um, Charlotte. She's, mm-hmm. um, she's going a little nuts. She's about, she's only eight pounds. So, mm-hmm. and we have a terrace so that she can run across, but. Unfortunately, she's learned to jump on the terrace pots, and now I'm worried she's going to be jump, able to jump over the wall or something. So right now she's out on a very long leash on the terrace. Um, you know, honestly, it's hard for dogs. I mean, you know, and she's so attached to us now because she's not walking with her other favorite doggies. Mm-hmm. She has friends mm-hmm. in the building that she goes out on walks with, so she's not been doing that. I think that you know writing was really in your genes. I, in fact, it seems like a story. It seems like a, if you if you want to say, it's like a, uh, you grew up. Your par uh, your parents are uh, screenwriters. Uh, your whole, all your family seems to be writers. It seems like you were born into a giant uh, writers' room. Um, and and I think people are really curious of what that's no, like. No, you know, I never thought of it that way, but that's what I, there's a dinner table, you know, with uh, the four daughters all became writers. And my parent, I mean, every time I said something funny, my dad shouted, that's a great line, write it down. I, I, I think being anything else in my family was not to be mm-hmm. successful. There was only one, it was a family business. Mm-hmm. It was. Um, no, I'm just curious about what that's like because a lot of people, you know, they like they knew they wanted to be writers, but it wasn't something that they had an example um, that they could see. Oh, these are 
they're successful working writers. You know, you right. see that. You know, wow, we we went to the film that they made or the the you know that is is interesting um but oh, is it also daunting i think maybe you put off your ambitions to, uh, to to write uh you kind of pushed them down for a while yes i did i mean well i mean it was really unusual in the 50s when to be a successful female writer my mother is a screenwriter you know and she was just i don't know why she was born in a very poor un uh, um, not a cultured family at all in the Bronx and why she had this idea that she would have these daughters be you know have attitudes about life that were very they were you know we we had to have jobs of course we really had to be writers that was the unspoken message but you know and unspoken messages in families are often the strongest but it was all really rewarded but we were not expected to marry have children um that was never even mentioned mm -hmm. you know she she never wanted to go to our wedding she would say elope mm -hmm. you know <laughs> get back to um, work <laughs> that was that was one of her many things and she used to say these very radical things just because you're related to someone there's no reason to like them she would say I mean, honestly, it's not the sort of thing a mother would normally say. Mm -hmm. And certainly saying a look to your four daughters, I mean, it's it's crazy. She mm -hmm. did not, she was, she really had very powerful attitudes, which I think, you know, she really gifted to Nora in a very extreme way. And, mm -hmm. you know, we, we were all talented. We all had ambition, but they were so successful. And then Nora was so successful so I did not become a writer till I was in my early 30s and I thought this is really what I meant to do and well you know the thing about your 20s is that you can just throw it away and think that you have all the time in the world and then you hit 30 and I realized oh I only have one life and I better do what I'm meant to do and then my sister Amy became a writer in her late 30s like almost 40 and Hallie didn't start till 50 mm -hmm. and she's published a ton of mysteries so all of us having had a each of us had a bigger mountain to climb you know and so but you know all of us became published writers it's it's but it, it was really about I mean my mother had us take English and I mean she you know no science no art just mm -hmm everything history and english that was all she she just controlled she was the most controlling woman really mm -hmm. and then you know when i was 11 my mother and father um both of them became terrible alcoholics and so i had a kind of 11 great years in a family and then lived in a home that was just so angry and troubled and huge fights i mean never slept at night and I, you know, when you're, when you meant to be a writer, these things, these things all impact your talent. So, I mean, I've always felt that the good part of that, and there's no really good part to having parents like that, but, you know, mm -hmm. writers can take stuff that happened to them and make something out of it. And I know that I got this ability to sort of go back and forth between sort of sadness and happiness in within one piece of work and I think it's because they you know when I was 11 really forever after 11 it just it just changed what my talent was 
from sunny to both sunny and not and and painful that I can combine them so that you know the great thing about being a writer is you can you can take the pain of your life and make something out of it and you can mix it up with the happier parts and make something even better out of it i mean it's 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 kind of you know all these things are end up being gifts when you're older yes because you can see well, I think it's nice also then when you put it in uh, between uh, the covers of a book or something with the beginning and the yeah. end, and that's great. Like, then it exists there, and then there's an end to it, you know? Um, yes, absolutely. I, I know that when my father died, which was, he was such a drama, mm -hmm. um, my mother died young, of, in her 50s, of cirrhosis mm -hmm. from alcoholism, yeah. so, I mean, you know... And then my father lived on, although in a very messy way, and when he died, it was just a kind of, um, I wrote a book called Hanging Up, yes. and which is about the death of the father. And by the time I finished that book, it was like I had a complete psychoanalysis. Mm. I understood it all, put it away. It was fine. Mm. Honestly, I, I'm not even exaggerating. I, honestly, it, it just made me, I had to think about all of it, and I had to make him, he was, in spite of all that, I, I did really love him, and I had to find that, too, in the book. So, um, yeah, writing's such a gift, I think. I, I feel that, of all the things in my life, it's been, it's been a safe place for me. Yes. I think that, and it's so nice that it allows you to remember with, with tenderness, you know, the many good yeah. qualities, um, even mm -hmm. though everyone is complicated. And uh, I was just going back there, it, was, it reminded me, I think it was Carl Ovenoskot told me, I can't remember, he wrote what? all these memoirs, you know that writer Carl Over. Oven Nosgard, um, he wrote all his memoirs, right, about his life. But he writes with such detail about his father, and uh, he didn't see his mother at all because she was kind and good. And so mm. it, it trains the memory as well. Because I'm just thinking, you said you had this kind of really kind of interesting childhood, and up to eleven, things began to fall apart or become you know more Dark. complicated yeah yeah um mm -hmm. but at that moment probably you're remembering that because when your kind of safety or your um equilibrium is you know challenged and um you remember it right <laughs> is there something on the yeah absolutely yeah. You, you do you you um well you make something out of it mm -hmm. that if it's if it's good other people are interested in it you know that's what's that's what's so wonderful about writing is that you know what everyone writes is personal whether whether it's i mean well some nonfiction isn't personal you know it's just you know a biography or something it's probably not but yeah. fiction is really personal yes it's come out of like all the characters are from your heart and your mind and and you know, and yet they have meaning to other people, so it's it's a wonderful thing. Hmm. And I'm just thinking now of, I mean, you've you've written memoir, which is of course directly personal, and then mm -hmm. your most uh, recent book. If you could speak about it now, we'll bring it back in. But um, um, Syracuse, um, where where how? So you'd come from writing your memoir, which I can imagine was maybe a release to write and then yeah maybe we just spoke, speak speak about your different projects and how one led to the other 
Well, Sister, Mother, Husband, Dog, which is a memoir I wrote after Nora died, um, is um, I actually wasn't writing it when she... I was writing Syracuse. Syracuse mm-hmm. is, a, is a story of uh, two couples and a child on a vacation in Italy, and everything is heading toward catastrophe, and it's really an exploration of marriage. It's sort of everything I have ever understood about marriage, mm-hmm. and it's, it's a bit of a psychological thriller. Anyway, I had been in Syracuse... Of, or Syracuse, if you're, you know, if you pronounce it the English way, mm-hmm. is the old section is is just unbelievable looking. It's just, un, it's so still in exactly the shape it was in for hundreds and hundreds of years. And, and so I was very, I just thought, I've traveled a lot with other couples and everything, and I thought, boy, if if things are going to go up in smoke, they would go up in smoke here. There's, you know, it's all paved with old stones. It doesn't have greenery. And the first day you're there, you think, this is the most beautiful place I've ever been. And the next day you think, if I don't get out of here, I'm going to go mad. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, this is just the most perfect place to set a vacation going up in smoke and exploring the subjects of marriage. So um, I was starting it, and then... Nora died, and I couldn't really write it. It was such a difficult book anyway. And um, I suddenly realized I wanted to write this this memoir book. And so I said to my publisher, can I write this instead right now? And he said, yes. Um, so I wrote that. And it, it has a long piece about my mother, which I think is probably one of my better essays. And... Um, and my love of my doggies and everything. Anyway, it's got everything in it that's just... Uh, and then I went back to Syracuse. I went there with my niece. I spent time there. I made friends there, and one in particular, an architect named Alex Yarsky, um, she she helped me so much. You know, some of writing is, is luck. Mm-hmm. And if you start an ambitious project, you're going to need help. You're going to have to... You know, especially, I don't know what I was thinking that I could write about a town I've barely ever been in, but um, because of Alex, who'd lived there and who's an architect and knew everything, you know, I was able to, you know, talk to her about ideas and show her. She ended up, after she was there, when I was there, she ended up in um, Cambridge, um, I mean Boston, you know, not Cambridge, England, and... um, uh, she was studying at Harvard as a grad, getting a graduate degree in architecture, and um, I mean, she was already an architect. I mean, you know, one of those yeah. super degrees after yes. that. And um, I would go up there and I show her my photos, and we would talk about what would go on, where, and everything. So, she, you know, I got lucky. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, these books—they're journeys. Mm-hmm. You have to know everything about everyone in your book. And you need to find people who help you do that. And um, I got so lucky with Syracuse. It took me quite a while to write it. It's very hard because it's four characters. Mm. It's four different voices. And every time I had to switch a voice, I was like starting the book all over. So it was rough. But I'm, you know, it was, it was. I was really happy about it. And. Um, and actually, my husband of 35 years, Jerry, died during that time, too. So 
the last trip I took to Syracuse, it was with my best friend, who's an English novelist named Julia Gregson, who wrote this fabulous book called East of the Sun. I mean, part of the wonderful thing about being a writer is that many of your close friends are writers, and there's so much you can talk endlessly about it. I don't know, cause it's probably completely narcissistic, but it's fun. And, uh, and, so and your husband was also a writer as well, so it's really... Uh... Yeah, my husband was a writer, absolutely. My, my, I, strangely, though, a year and a half after Jerry died, I wrote a piece for the New York Times Yes. about my uh, Verizon. Verizon's our phone system, and everyone hates it. And mine went down when I was trying to change something from Jerry. I was trying to disconnect Jerry's telephone, and... Uh, it destroyed my internet for some reason. I was in such a rage, and I wrote this angry piece about how much I hated Verizon, and the New York Times published it, and then it turns out everybody hates Verizon, so I got a whole bunch of letters from it. And about four months later, I got a letter from Peter, who is my husband now, um, who said we had a date. We had a couple of dates when I was 18. I, I really don't remember it but um, at all even now that we're married. Anyway, um, Peter was a psychiatrist, and he had lost his wife, and his last trip with her had been to Syracusa. Mm, so that was just, like, coincidence, weird, yes, weird. Yeah. Um, and he'd read your book, and then, too. He'd read my book. Yeah. So. And he knew to say that he loved it, which, <laughs> <laughs> since I'm a writer, that was probably all it took. He's a wonderful person. Anyway, we, we got married, and, and that was as unexpected as anything in the world. But I feel like my writing has taken me. Oh, I'll tell you, of all the things that have happened to me, I do think there's, a, I don't know if it's synchronicity or I don't know exactly what it is, but my novel before Syracuse is called The Lion is In, and yes. it's about three three women in a bar with a lion. And um takes place in North Carolina and I wrote it because I I went to sleep one night when I think both Jerry was sick and Nora and I just was just overwhelmed and I thought um how am I going to get through this and I had this dream about these three women in a bar and a lion in in a state called North Carolina Mm -hmm. I'd never in my life been to North Carolina so I anyway I woke up and I thought oh I'm going to write this and for some reason, it was the easiest book I've ever... It was fun. It was so much fun. And I wrote it, and I never went to North Carolina. My girlfriends, who are writers, all said to me, well, you cannot write a book that takes place in a state you've never been to. You have to go there. So after I'd written the whole book, I went to sort of make sure that it wasn't... You know, that it, it made sense and to yeah. give it a little more texture, right? Mm-hmm. And... Um, I just had picked this town. Oh God, what's it called? I it starts with an R. I can't remember its name. But anyway, we stayed in this place, and every morning my niece and I, she would drive, and we would we would program the, um, uh, you know, the GPS. Yeah. And and just put take back roads, and we would pick a random destination. Now, in my book, I had written about this tree in a field that looked like it had been struck by lightning. It didn't have any leaves. The, mm. the, the branches were all truncated, and it was just like a sculpture more than a tree, and it was all alone in the field. They're getting rid of it, and the, the woman who loves the lion, Rita, she, she 
she convinces guys to dig up this tree and bring it to where the lion is, okay? Oh. And Anna and I are driving down this random road, and there is the field, and there is the tree. I mean, it was... I absolutely screamed. <laughs> and, uh, I mean... And Anna, you know, freaked out. She didn't know why. And she stopped the car, and I... I I, that, that's in my book. I mean, I was just totally paralyzed. How did I, how did I know this? How did I, we're looking at it, and this guy stops. They were very friendly in North Carolina. She stopped mm -hmm. to find out if everything was okay, and he had a pickup truck. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm just looking at that tree. And he said, oh, yeah, that's his friend's tree. It's an oak tree, which is what I had said in the book. And he said, and in my story, the lion doesn't really know what to do with the tree, so he just rubs himself against it, mm -hmm. you know, and he said the bark's rubbed off because those goats over there come over and rub themselves against the tree. Yeah, it's, it's strange that, and you're really I a mean, city person, you, know, you don't really have a, a, a deep, um, you know what I mean, <laughs> it's not, it's like a real strange intuition about it. I I think that honestly, because there one other strange thing happened on this trip. I had had a character who had a who who he was the lion was his in this bar, but he also has a, a vintage car, yes. a Chevy Miller convertible, mm -hmm. and Anna and I picked. I wanted to sort of see what the inside of someone's house looked like, so we. We were in a Mexican restaurant, and there was a, a thing on the wall of a woman selling bread out of her house. So we mm -hmm. called her up, and she said, you know, oh, sure, come over. You know, and we went over, and we bought some of her bread, and we looked at her house mm -hmm. surreptitiously while we did. And her husband came home, and we we're chatting with him, and we go outside, and he is driving a vintage Chevy Biller convertible. Mm -hmm. It's so beautiful, this car, mm -hmm. and it's parked in front of their house now. And I look at it, and I just thought, there, there is just like, I honestly think that there's some, I don't understand the connection, mm. you know, between what you imagine, do you know it beforehand? You know what I mean? It, it almost it almost made me religious, which well, in my family would be just considered the lowest form of life. <laughs> well, you're writers. You didn't need religion per se. You have, you have a yeah, yeah, I guess right. you're in touch with another divinity. Um, mm -hmm. But I do I guess think, so. Don't you think that's incredible? Um, yeah, it's it's very interesting. But I think this it's part about, and particularly um, artists in different disciplines, that you're doing a lot of observing and a lot of listening. And so your empathetic imagination is, is mm -hmm. more attuned, you know, if you're really, you know, involved in that, you know, like almost you give up your life during, like yeah. while you're working on something to imagine another life. So part of that is you're picking up lots of things. And I really think, like, how do we pick up this signal? Like I'm caught, you know, um, uh, like a Wi-Fi signal. So I'll, oh, these are traveling through the air, right? And that becomes yeah. information. And we must have that in us if we... If you're open, I would, I would guess so. I mean, empathetic imagination—that's a wonderful term. I've never heard it before, but um, yeah, I, t I talk um, about it now with this project because I, I think it's true. You have to have the empathy to have the imagination in it. Oh, way. how interesting! But that's how, because how can you get these characters to speak? You have to not just be yourself; you have to become them, right? Um, yeah, I, I think that that. I think you either have an ear for dialogue or you don't. I mean, I, yeah. I, I think it's just having an ear, mm -hmm. which, you know, 
thank God I do, but some books are practically all, I mean, I have a lot of dialogue in my books, but some, some books are almost exclusively that, and mm. it's, you know, it, it, I guess, like, I, I think, thank God for dialogue, because I don't write the best sunset in the world, you know mm. what I mean? It's yeah. like really hard for me, and someone said to me when I was starting, and I was despairing of my descriptive abilities, mm. the person said something like, only do what you can do. Yeah. And that is, I think, for a writer, what the search is. What is it that I know? What is it that I can see? What is it that I understand? And if you mine that, you know, then you're in safe territory creatively. Mm. Well, I think people really skip to the dialogue. That's one thing that I picked up from Elmore Leonard or whatever, and he was kind of um, religious about, like, all a lot of dialogue as well, and... And then I realized that's that's true. People are just skipping. They're often skipping the sunsets because, like, once you've seen that one sunset, like, you know, on the page, it mm-hmm. looks the same as another sunset on the page. So right, you right, want right, to know, you know what's happening. <laughs> um, so that's good. Well, you know, I think in terms of those are the best muscles to have that people are interested in drama, you know. Um, well, you just have to do what you, I mean, it's only do what you can do. I mean, you figure that's part of your search. What is it yeah. that I understand about the world and about storytelling and about other people, about people's lives? Mm-hmm. And that's what I mine. And if you do that and you don't try to do things that aren't part of your heart, mm-hmm. then, then you're okay. You can do yeah. it anyway. I'm Alex Barnett, a graduate of Northwestern University, where I studied filmmaking, history, and creative writing. I'm grateful that Delia Efron, Mia Funk, and the creative process are giving me the opportunity to respond within this podcast. My writing process almost always begins with the character, no matter how fully fleshed out or thin. This character is almost always college-aged, 18 to 23, which corresponds to my age as writing has taken up more of my life. I struggle in my own ways to think beyond myself, but I don't think that the 18 to 23 age range strikes me just because I have also been an 18 to 23 year old. Every other summer throughout my childhood, I accompanied my mother to Greece, where she taught and still teaches a five-week study abroad program based around the close reading and performance of ancient plays by Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides. Every time I went, I befriended her American college students. I befriended them at age four, then six, then eight, then 11, and most recently 18, at a university myself. As my understanding of the world exponentially increased, I kept engaging different versions of the same group of college students, generally from the East Coast, always attending the same university. I feel like I'm always thinking about people I met on those trips, striking individual personalities that blend together as Greece cohort student X, or stand out as impactful figures in my life over a particular summer. Throughout her interview, Delia Efron discusses the relationship between a writer's childhood experience and its effect upon their eventual ability and output. At some point, you cannot write consistently if you cannot write what you know. I'll never pretend to know everything about every college-aged mind, but because my childhood featured so many revolving personalities whose ages remained locked as I continued to grow, I attach my characters to those people. Yeah, 
Yeah, because I think that it's a um, it's a sincerity thing too, because it's true to you. Like I think mm-hmm. that a lot of people, if when and you've seen it, like you've seen, I think that particularly if I might say as well, what you and also collaboratively with Nora, uh, you really set um, a model for like romantic comedies that then people were copying, but you could see that it wasn't a sincere search. It was like, you know, it's like oh, this was successful. Let's do it. You know. Um, but there's just, yes, I yeah. think that if you're looking outside mm-hmm. for your ideas, I mean, I mean, really externally. Oh, yeah. vampires are popular now. I think I'll write a vampire. Mm-hmm. You know, there that, that's all wrong. Yeah. You know, you have to just figure out what your own understandings are and gifts are, and what your heart is interested in, and, and work work from inside out. Because also, you know, I was never, you know, young and hip. Mm-hmm. So I never needed to worry about being old and unhip. And yeah. um, I I think that if you're just always working from your own heart, you can't get sucked into that. And yeah, so that's interesting because you're talking about fashion. And then, of course, um, Love Loss and What I Wore is interesting because... Um, this it's a play maybe you'd give a bit of the background for those who don't know but it's not just about fashion it's the stories that our clothes the memories that are stored within our clothes or how what they say about us and our relationships or certain periods of time in our lives yeah it's interesting that that's based on this a book by eileen beckerman called love loss and what i wore and mm-hmm. um which was quite a successful book here it's an adorable book and mm-hmm. it's just she drew her dresses and mm-hmm. then she talked about them and you know nothing in her life had anything to do with my life but the minute Nora and I read this book we started to think all about our own clothes and what they meant to us and it's just the simplest idea if you ask women about their clothes they tell you about their life mm-hmm. and it's a very feminine thing but it's a very powerful thing and um, so you know we optioned that book and it took 14 years to figure it out. Yes. It's such a simple, it's such a simple show. Mm-hmm. Just five women and their stories, and and then the universal stories of the bra and the you know and shopping and the closet and the dressing room and things like that. That we, you know we found all sorts of things, but we couldn't make it work. Mm-hmm. And honestly, we gave up on it several times. And at one point, I said to Nora, you just take it. I don't want anything more to do with this. And then she called me and said, oh, I'm in California, and, you know, there's a director here who's going to direct it and come out. And we had this little performance in this little theater on Pico Boulevard, and almost everybody we were close friends with out there was there. And it was the worst, you know, it was horrible. Mm-hmm. It, it it just didn't work at all. It was a... And at that point, we just put it away for another bunch of years. Mm-hmm. And then another director, Karen Carpenter, had been carrying it around with her, and she asked if she could do a reading of it in East Hampton. Did you do that at Guildhall? What? Oh, I know. It's, I just thought maybe you did it at Guildhall. I wasn't sure, because we did projects. Yes, at, yes, yeah. we did, at Guildhall. Oh, yes, I know and Josh for Gladstone. for some reason... I think we had a little workshop for the week before. We figured something out about it, mm-hmm. and we had a very wonderful actor doing Gingy, uh, Linda Lavin. Mm-hmm. It it sort of worked. I mean, I mean, fourteen years of just yeah. putting it away, having 
catastrophic little performances of it, you know, workshops. I mean, because with a play, you know, you can you can have like a little workshop. People get together, you get your actors together for a week, and then you figure out if you can get somewhere with it. And anyway, 14 years, and, and Daryl Roth, this wonderful Broadway producer, and she produces Off-Broadway, too, you know, was there. And she said, well, let's do it. And the next thing we knew, it was, you know, we did it. And it, it we figured it out. I don't, God, I'll tell you, all I can tell you about this is that you have to be driven. Yes. You have to believe in your work regardless of what anybody tells you or, you know, you just have to keep going. Yeah. And, and it's, it's strange. You Could you identify what, I mean, I understand you're like different collaborators, but could you identify what was the ingredient or ingredients that made it finally click um, through revisions? And Yeah. I actually, first of all, we the opening wasn't right. Mm-hmm. And actually, somebody said to me, after that catastrophe, they said to me, you have to explain why everybody's here. So uh, we changed our opening, the Gingy character, who is sort of the hostess of the show. Um, she says, you know, talks about drawing her dresses when she, and realizing my dresses tell a story, and that that was almost the key line. That And then we... Yeah, we figured that out, and we, you know, this is, there are 16 women who have contributed substantially to this in, in their stories so that we share, we give them royalties on it. Yeah, that's nice. And she did interviews. And Rosie O'Donnell, who yeah. was in our opening cast, wrote a wonderful piece about her, her mother's bathrobe. It's mm-hmm. very yes. moving. And, um... It, it's up front now. It, it was it, we put it in like a week before we opened the show, and uh, it, it told you that the that this wasn't just fluff. Yeah. That there was real emotional content in this. It sort of alerted you to what your, the evening was. So mm-hmm. I would say the two things were we didn't present the show properly, and nobody knew quite what was going on. And the other thing was. That I actually think Rosie's piece gave the thing. The thing had it had a lot of depth. It's got many stories that are powerful, but it, it, there was something about this particular story up front mm-hmm. that made you realize, oh, this isn't just lightweight. This is, you know. And and I think of all nor my collaborations. I mean, this is done. This show, which we thought was. You know, it's done. It's been done in Manila, in Johannesburg, in Israel, in Berlin, mm-hmm. in the, I mean, honestly, Paris. Uh, mm-hmm. It's been done all over the world. I've never had anything that has quite gone global the way this thing. Isn't it strange? But everyone has a relationship to whether they have a relationship to fashion, they have a relationship yeah. to style, and a lot for a lot of people, I think art is something. Oh, it's not part of my life. Maybe I go to a museum. You know, maybe I mean I go to museums more, but some people like they don't like that's a distant thing. But the art that they wear is their flair, or you know, yeah. they show their well. It's not about fashion. Yeah, the but show it, yeah. isn't about fashion. It's about. It's about the clothes you have and what they mean to you. I mean, mm-hmm. and and that's that's not. It's not at all about fashion. I think it's interesting. So, what were what are those items of clothing? I don't know. Like, did you have to 
get rid of them or can you not bring yourself to get rid of them or that this could almost stand in for you like you could send this dress to an event in your place if you couldn't make it oh sorry I'm you know it's a, i mean when we asked we asked a lot of our friends to give mm-hmm. us their stories and um enormous amount of stories came in about boots oh wow boots okay. are really powerful to women they I don't have, have a, a good pair. Wow. And they they have had significant experience. You know, they have they have just that was probably. I mean, we knew the bra was going to produce a ton of stories. Of course, it did, uh-huh. but um, but we did not know that boots were going to come in as big as they did. So uh-huh. there's two boot stories in it. Um, it was just it was kind of revealing in that way about uh-huh. you know I mean look. What's more commanding than a pair of boots, really, for a woman? So that's for you? You have a, a memorable pair of boots that it's like... I have one pair of boots that I'm absolutely mad about that I've been mm-hmm. wearing for, you know, 15 years. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I think... But uh, but also, just some people just have... I think I did a, a speaking thing once, and I asked everyone... I said boots were this major thing, and I said, how many pairs of boots as everyone having I mean most women in the audience had three pairs of boots at least and that's a lot of boots yeah it's it's a strange thing I can't say that I really have a good pair of boots I need to get I have a little valley flats I have a really old pair of boots that are like I haven't worn them in a while but they're great then I have these really fabulous pair of Prada boots that cost me an arm and a leg but I've worn them every year for 15 years and mm-hmm. then I have my Timberlane boots that are you know mountain climbing boots even though I never climb any mountains at all mm-hmm. but I, they make me feel so tough and cool mm-hmm. and um, let's see and I have these boots because I wanted a pair of short boots mm-hmm. you know yeah. and they're not that comfortable so mm-hmm. I don't wear them that much and uh, so I mean that's a lot of boots yeah no, it's an interesting psychological... I did an interview with the director of the Museum of the Fashion Institute of Technology. So I'm, I'm, I know it's not about fashion, but it's about how, how, we, how we imagine ourselves. Or I think it helps us. I think for some people, it's the relationship. It's interesting because a lot of writers like maybe don't even care what they wear, but that's a different kind of uniform. <laughs> You'll see that like they wear their... They just have their, thing, their writing clothes. Um, but... It helps us be another person, say, or become like a, an actor, I guess. Yes, I think for some people, you know, clothes or costume. Mm-hmm. Um, they certainly, I think that, you know, and and every almost everybody remembers a prom dress. Almost mm-hmm. everyone remembers, you know, buying their first bra. I mean, there are certain things that are, I mean, I'm not someone that is, I literally just wear a black T-shirt. Mm-hmm. every day practically uh, yeah. I mean unless I'm going out and I I'm happiest in it you know mm-hmm. but I don't think of it as not close mm-hmm. it's my thing you know yeah. I just feel good in a in a cute black t-shirt so yeah. that's I always have a pair I haven't you know a one one t-shirt I haven't opened yet or something because you know you throw them in the wash and I mean they're just so they're so comfortable and happy and they look I think they look great I just love them the rest of my clothes, I like them, but not as much. 
I think that after all this, I think pajamas might make a comeback. <laughs> They'll be seeing, like, oh. pajama-inspired fashion. Oh, I guess so, <laughs> right, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, for me, I just wear a dress. So people think I'm dressed up, but it's actually, like, I don't iron or anything, but I look put together when I put a dress on. In the same way, like, men used to always just wear a suit. Now it's different, but um, it's just the easiest thing. You don't have to think about it. So uh, I'm very that. jealous of people who feel comfortable in dresses, but I, I don't even own a dress, and I haven't for years and years. Oh, oh well, yeah. I mean, I think, um, well, I, I like them, and and people always say, like, I, I look turned out or like I dressed up but it's it's not I don't I mean if you have a busy pattern yeah. on it then you don't even have to iron it you know so no 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 I mean exactly like, you know it's, it, but that's what I mean it's, per, it's so personal isn't it yeah so no it's, yeah. it is interesting and you'd also done uh, the sisterhood uh, the traveling pants uh, which is a it, it's an, like personal stories woven together through one garment that film um, oh, right. That's yeah. not, you know, that's based on a very, yes. very successful book mm-hmm. by Anne Brashears. Um So I, I don't take any responsibility for it. But you adapt, well, adapt, I think adaptations are, I know, are interesting, though, because you can't put everything that's in the book. So maybe, you know, the selection process. Yeah, mm-hmm. but that book was, I mean, that that book was hugely, that's a huge book in in, in the world of young teenage girls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, really a book about friendship and blue jeans. Yeah, like one pair of pants that fits them all mm-hmm. and unites them. Um, yeah. But I think, um, I mean, you. I think that you say that with humility, but it, I, I think it relates back to Rosie O'Donnell's story of her uh, mother's bathrobe. And the sequencing of putting that where it is now, and maybe yeah. you know it relates to adapting a book into a screenplay. Like there's a real art in that, and the ordering even of it, you know, that is involved in the editing process. Um, yeah, the, is there's important. no question a book a book is not a book is not a movie. Mm-hmm. It really isn't, and you have to find the movie in the book, and you have to at some point let the book go in order to do it, I think. Um, although I've been watching Normal People. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that? No, I haven't. I know I don't know. Well, it feels it feels to me exactly like the book. It's so mm-hmm. close. It captured, mm-hmm. I, I love the book, so, mm-hmm. you know, I'm interested to see that. And I know the author is one mm-hmm. of the writers, if not the only. I think mm-hmm. there are a couple of writers, but mm-hmm. her name is on a lot of it. Um, I think also that those longer things that aren't movies these these epic things that last forever i mean normal people something could have easily been done in a two-hour movie but instead it's what a 12-hour television thing i mean that is close more closely approximates a novel yeah, so there's less of that selection process but it's yeah, interesting uh-huh. yeah i mean you really can just i mean i did i adapted syracusa as a a two-hour movie, but it could have easily been turned into something much longer. It just would be very different and, and probably much closer to the book. Right. And in terms of, I and maybe I don't have your entire filmography, you've been uh, primarily, it's been film then, when you've done adaptations. You Have you worked with some I haven't people? done, I've written for television, but I don't think any, I've ever had anything made in television, no. Right. It's all been filmed. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess, you know, I, I really think 
the thing about the thing about my novels and my essays mm. is that and my books of humor like how to eat like a child which was my first book yes. and it was the first time I thought oh that's who I am yeah sometimes your writing tells you that mm-hmm. um that um those are those are the things that really reflect me inside you know movies are collaborations I mean yeah. every single thing you know you, I mean, I am, and you've got mail, but Nora directed it, and, you know, Meg and Tom contributed to it, and every, the, you know, the casting people and the set, yeah. I mean, you know, the set designers and the, you know, cinematographer, it, it's such a, it, it's wonderful when the movie works, but it's mm-hmm. just, you know, much different mm-hmm. in terms of what you feel is your voice, and I think I knew when I started I knew when I started collaborating mm-hmm. with Nora, it was after I'd written How to Eat Like a Child, and I think I'd written Teenage Romance, and I was pushing myself to learn a different thing each year. Mm-hmm. I have to learn to write an essay this year. I have to, eventually I got to the novel, you know. Mm-hmm. And I knew that if I didn't write my own things, mm-hmm. I would be lost as a writer. Yeah. And the only place I could do that was in books. Mm-hmm. So that's why I I love books because they are my voice and only my stories. It's, you have to have a very different... There's so much heartbreak in screenwriting. I mean, you're yeah. fired. It's horrible, you know? Yeah. And, you know, your favorite thing in the script, somehow it didn't work that day on the set. It's not there. Yeah, you That's really one reason to... why it's nice to be the director because if you screw it up, mm-hmm. you can at least just blame yourself and <laughs> it's easier. Um, yeah. Anyway... Well, I think really, I mean, the place where writers have a lot of control now is if you're a showrunner, but then you have to work 14-hour days, so it's a bit of a trade-off um, if, you, if you're willing to make it. I, I could not and would not want that life, but yeah. and the people, my friends that do it are, yeah. you know, crazed a lot of the time. It's mm-hmm. brutal. Yeah, you have to also have a lot of other skills that writers don't necessarily have, like... Uh, budgeting and well directing and all these other things that right, you have yeah. to um, uh-huh. you know it's kind of nice not to ha- have those responsibilities but you had an interesting mm-hmm. experience that I think that a lot of writers don't have in terms of when they're writing um, screenplays is that I think that you were able to be more on set in a collaborative way than a lot of writers I think are almost told to go away right one of the most wonderful things about working with Nora, since mm-hmm. the fact that we just had so much fun, mm-hmm. was that I was on the set. I was I produced a lot of our movies too. Mm-hmm. I was yeah. in the meetings before. I was in casting sessions. I, you know, most writers, you know, they just don't get that yeah. at all. You know, the movie starts and that everyone starts to have fun, and mm-hmm. they're at home. You know, they're not there. Mm-hmm. So, or they're invited for a week to go to the set, and I was really able to be on our sets as much and in any area of the process as much as I wanted. And honestly, and also, you know, Nora didn't fire me, and you know, writers just get fired all the time and replaced with other writers. And so, you know, there was just a kind of, uh, it was just a wonderful partnering for us. I mean, it was just for me. Uh, it was fantastic to be to to work with her on screen. You know, on screenplays, it was just fabulous. But I did know that if I didn't do my own things, I wouldn't have my own writing and my own voice. And 
and I always knew also, you know, you can retire. I'm not sure if this is exactly the right age, but it's close. But you can mm-hmm. retire as a writer in Hollywood at the age of 52. Mm-hmm. And that's because they pretty much won't hire you after that. So, I mean, you know, you are really useless out there after a certain age, unless you've had a lot of success. So there is, and and the business is changing so much. So, I mean, it's very, I knew that if I needed, wanted a long career, because I not want to be a director, it's not my nature. Mm-hmm. Um, if I wanted a long career, I knew that I had to do other things. I had to do books, I had to do theater. You know, there's a kind of... Yeah, the writers. I, I just knew, don't know one thing. You know, mm-hmm. I, that's why I've written so many um, essays for magazines and newspapers And you've also well. written for, you know, yeah, um, young people as well. Um, yes, I've done YAs, I've done children's books. Yeah, I've tried everything pretty much, but, mm-hmm. you know, it was just knowing that, you know, I, I don't know very many happy writers in Hollywood. They complain all the time. They're always miserable. Not all of them, but an awful... Even the ones that are really successful uh, are driven kind of crazy. So I think I think that's something I actually was smart about. Yeah, well, you'd seen, you'd seen a certain... I mean, I don't know if that... Um, and the, the burnout level, you'd seen, like, the, the, the warning lights maybe from some other people. <laughs> you had the examples, so... Um, yeah. Um, no, I think that that's definitely smart. And then there is this creative satisfaction when primarily... It's not that one wants entirely the credit for oneself, because I think that people who are in collaborative mediums love that, you know, it's a group effort. Mm-hmm. But it, when you feel that, well, primarily, apart from your editor or whatever, the publicist, um, that that's you there. It's just a more personal connection to the work, right? You mean books? Yeah, and books. Yeah, like it's yeah, like right. that. Yeah, that's no, a, that's a piece like of me like that. These stories aren't, this is me. These are my stories. These are my stories to tell and nobody else yeah um can tell them it's a different very satisfying very challenging thing i mean the thing about screenwriting is it's really fun uh-huh. and novel writing can be really hard really yeah. really hard i mean screenwriting's hard but it's not like that it's just you forget that you're going to be mistreated after it's a good thing because otherwise i think you know people wouldn't want to do it yeah no i i just i i'm always telling my friends who are you know, screenwriters in their 40s, uh, you know, please don't just do this. Or you either become a director. Yeah. Or just don't do this, you know, for ever. Do write a play, write something else. You know, mm-hmm. can work, you can work till you're really older in theater. Theater mm-hmm. is very respectful of older talent. You know, the movies just, it's about 15-year-old boys, the movies. Don't forget that. Yeah. I was, I was just talking with... Um Paul Hirsch the other day, of course, edited Star Wars and Mission Impossible, oh my like God. forty other, and it's a seniority thing too. Like, so he's done over forty films, but then you're working for people and you have to be subordinate, and so that must be so frustrating too. With you know a lot of things under your belt, and still, you know, the director's maybe thirty or something. And yeah, yeah, it's it's you know it's co- collaboration. Collaboration works best I think if you well if you're collaborating with another writer I think it's best if it's not the most personal thing in the world to you because it, you sort of need to have an equal investment in the material mm-hmm. and if if it's one of your stories you know mm-hmm. then the person whose story it is 
I mean, really, like if it's based on your, you know, high school experience or something, you're going to want to control it. It, you know, the, there are all sorts of things that make collaboration work. Also, if you're collaborating with someone, you should like the same things. You should laugh at the same things. You should, probably should have the same attitudes about money even. You know, mm-hmm. I always think that's, like, significant in life. Mm-hmm. And um, the wonderful thing about doing your books and, you know, and your nonfiction pieces is that, you know, you, you don't answer to anyone else. And when people are sitting on a couch, they've got your book. It's reading a book. It's your it's your world they're entering, and in mm-hmm. and, and a movie's it, really every great movie is a complete miracle because mm-hmm. it's hard to have that many people collaborating and have it all come out. Yeah, it's even a miracle that it gets done that they all actually yeah, that, get that's to the finish really, line. I mean, honestly, that, that's just. I mean, that you don't even need to talk about it. It's such a destructive thing for. I mean, this is about creativity, and, mm-hmm. uh, and I think. You know, there's certain people, I, I was watching that documentary about Steven Spielberg, and he really has, a, I mean, if you read, if you watch most of his movies, they're mostly about boys coming of age, young men. They're, me, they're men's stories, and there's usually a young man coming of age, and that, mm-hmm. and over and over again, it's it's kind of what he's exploring. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's a childlike, it's not childlike, it's male, and it's his interest. It's not particularly sexual at all. Mm-hmm. That's not it's not really about mature grown-up relationships mm-hmm. in marriage or anything. I don't mm-hmm. mean he doesn't know about that. Uh, I'm sure he does, but it's not what his... I think your talent is set very young. Yes. It seems like and, it was marked um, by divorce it, or something. You know, and those, so certain directors can really... And even actors, you, you can see that they've explored... Uh, you know, they've been famous and successful enough to be able to really explore just what their interests are. But um, it's harder for everyone else to do that. It's strange in movie how. Business. Yeah, it's interesting. It is, but that is an interesting question about how much of your um, the themes of what interests you, or like if you've been psychically marked from a young age or whatever. Where you know when that you know you can meet a young child and you say whatever they have a old soul or they have. You know, like you see an immense personality. Like how could that exist in a three year old? You know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just strange when that begins. It's um... well, yeah. It's like I said. I, I really think you know, by the time you're eleven yeah. or twelve, what you're, who you are, is kind of, it's there. It's all there. I mean, events will happen to you that you may end up writing about. They may transform you. They may change you. But you know, they're the the essential gift, and what you see about the world gets defined in childhood and it's not it's um parenting is that's important. my opinion i don't know maybe no no I, I think so too i think about it a lot because i'm working a lot with young people but not at such a young level but um it's you know parents are important and environment is important and education is really important too because they're the, se- the secondary parents right um, right or peers as well because they kind of teach us things as, as well um so i it's something i think i i i, I focus on a lot because I want to know how we can improve these systems to to teach children in the best way to achieve their potential oh, and yeah that's interesting I, I, I don't you know, have any idea mm-hmm. about that I don't I don't actually think my education helped me in any way shape or form I mean it was very conventional I don't even think I thought that what I was interested in even belonged in school 
yes. think I thought um, schools where I learn these things, but they don't. What I'm interested in, it just never crossed my mind that that would be something that would happen in school. Yeah. So I think the schools are better now. I mean, I've been to um, my stepson, uh, Adam, when he was at his school in L.A., and I remember going to open school night and thinking, God, I wish I'd been at a school like this. But, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't. I was just in the, I was in the Beverly Hills Public Schools, and then I went to you know Barnard and frankly I I didn't really get anything out of any of it much yeah and I was too stupid to realize I should I was sort of a spoil I mean in some ways it's kind of this is what I do this is what my mother expects this is what my dad expects you know I just of course I have to go to college but uh-huh. I didn't until I got out think okay what am I interested in and that didn't happen for a long time and so I think the real essential question is, what is it that interests you? Mm. And I don't think education addresses it enough. Well, one thing that I think, and what I've observed is people, or in myself, I think particularly artists might be more this way. Some people are more theoretical, um, and then they're happy when things are theoretical and doesn't have a direct application. Mm-hmm. But I think that artists like love learning. It's just like kind of a sense of play. Like once you're interested in something, you'll probably learn everything about it, right? You and you went to Syracuse yeah. mm-hmm. or whatever, and because you know there's going to be a novel at the end of it, and then that becomes uh, a movie, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But you have like a reason for it, right? And I really yeah. think that even people who aren't artists, like I think that we're all born kind of artists or creative with a creative capacity. So I've noticed that like if you can excite. Um, young people around a project so instead of like I just have to memorize these dates or whatever whatever you have Google Wikipedia for that right um but you all I mean I almost feel like and why I mean tests are good I guess but it's even more interesting to say if you have a class and they all do a project so that the strengths of each one could collectively contribute to it Mm -hmm. and then you really remember that very well when you've made something you know um, yes I think that's true Crafts, it's almost craft satisfaction, yeah. which I think, you know, was probably a really important thing for me to do, and I didn't really do anything crafty until mm-hmm. I was in my 20s. It was just so nice to make things. Yeah. But even, you know, I'm sure if I'd, any sort of creative projects at school would have made me a lot more interested in school, but honestly, until I, until I, got out of college and just got married to the first man who asked me for no good reason and finally got out of that and said, okay, what are you going to do with yourself, you know? That was when I started to become a writer. And and the first thing I wrote that really changed my life was, was about children and food. And I didn't, you know, it, it was a very eccentric piece, this how to eat like a child. It was just directions for how to eat certain things the way children eat and I I've it was a, a ridiculous little piece but it was a big sensation then mm. it was just people went crazy when they read it honestly I have messages on my phone machine letters school children writing me the whole classroom and it was mm. this crazy thing and I and um it was just came out of my I was just eating chocolate pudding one night, and I just noticed that I was eating it the way I did as a kid, so I wrote this funny piece about it, and that mm-hmm. was that. Yeah. You know, and so creativity is so completely eccentric. It's, no, it's fascinating. And then it, it, the universal appeal of, of that also relates to, like, 
um, how you everyone has a relationship to their clothing too, you know, in a, in a very personal yeah. way. Mm -hmm. So we have yes, this. Yes, that's thing. right. It's that personal. Your relationship to your chocolate pudding and your clothing are almost the same. It's true. Yeah, and like here in France, like we're obsessed about bread. Like I was sad because I've been getting the fresh bread, but then I was thinking, oh, maybe it's coronavirus. Maybe someone's handling things, and I can't. You know, they wouldn't close the boulangeries because that's an essential service. You can't close oh, the nice. boulangeries in Paris. Right, yeah, right. <laughs> we need. But you know, then I started to get some. You know, we have a very good. I don't know if you know Picard, so they do good frozen. And I, I start to get like frozen bread there because I was worried that maybe. I know. The baker couldn't, you know, you, you never know. Who's no, I understand be. that because yeah. I, I order a lot of takeout, but when I order, I mean, anything that comes in from a market gets washed so many times here, it's insane. But mm -hmm. also, I won't, I tend not to order any desserts or anything. Mm -hmm. I love desserts, but I, those are the only things I bake myself because I'm, if I can't put it in an oven, yeah, I don't trust it. Yeah. It's it's just caution. Isn't so. that sad? But I mean, yeah, that comes down to the things that you realize that you miss, that you take for granted. Mm. Um, you know, but it's so interesting. And that, so you've written that essay that became a book. And it's, it's, it's interesting how, like, something that you think is going to be a small uh, project becomes you know, that you do, like, almost easily, or like you have a dream about something and then it becomes something that kind of flows out of you yes it's just, it was really strange because it was a it was for me i knew i i decided you know i left this early marriage i went to new york and I said okay you've got a year you've got enough money for a year you have to get published in the new york times but i knew that that was the only place where you could sort of springboard yourself yeah and um i was really honestly i was down to my last five hundred dollars and and uh you know, well, actually, I think it was 300 because I fell in love with this orange coat. So mm -hmm. anyway, I was eating chocolate pudding, and I thought, oh, I'm eating like a child. Mm -hmm. And I just wrote this crazy 500-word piece about just describing how children eat food, but it was funny, very specific. And I sent it to someone I knew who was an illustrator. I mean, uh, uh, I sent it to Edward Corrin, who's a New Yorker cartoonist, and I mm -hmm. said, do you think... We could, you know, and he, he said, I'll give it to them at the t New York Times because they have this back page then on the magazine, Sunday Magazine, and, you know, they run just a, a, a one-page thing. And mm -hmm. he gave it to them, and they took it. Mm -hmm. And I was offered a book contract on Monday. Yeah. You know, my life went from, you know, and it was just, it was just such a strange thing. And I look at this thing, and I just thought, you know, oh, I understand children. I didn't know that, but I think I really do. It's one of the things I know best, I think. And um, I heard my voice, which was off, very off the wall. Mm. And I just like the piece, 500 words, it told me who I was. It launched my career. And that book was a bestseller for months and months and months. It was a huge success. And then it became a children's musical review. It was on Dendon on television, mm. rather not to my taste. And um, then that was adapted as a musical theater review that I sort of did some work on. Mm. And I've uh, it's been published by Samuel French, which Samuel French is 
if you have a play done and then you want it to be done all over the country in community theaters, et cetera, et cetera, they license it. You yes. give it to them and they license it. It's been done all over the country in Canada for 15, well, since 19, about 82. Oh, that's, that's a um, long And I've made money off that every year, children oh. doing this thing. I mean, it's by far the most successful thing I've ever done. Oh, I didn't realize. I knew it had a lifespan, but I didn't realize. Oh, no, I mean, it's just been insane. I think you just never know if you're, you know, where it's coming from. And I always, I think what's so tricky about screenwriters is that they're they're always applying for, they're often applying for jobs. Uh They're not thinking about what is completely right for them. You know what I mean? But I'm not sure. It just is that. It's just that you're a hired hand. Whatever's wrong with the book business or the theater business or whatever, you're not a hired hand. Yeah, exactly. It's the, it's the blueprint. For, it's, yeah. it's the oxygen, you know, and I think it. Mm-hmm. I think that more and more, I mean, if that's one thing that's been good about this renaissance in television is that there has been, because they have to have, you know, this long arcs of episodic storytelling that they mm-hmm. really realize, and the quality is, is good, so... Um, mm-hmm. But they really realize they need those writers. You know? Yeah, writers are. Television is a much better form for writers. I mm-hmm. think that's really good. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, they they run it. They yeah. you know they're the they're the big stars, and I think that's that's a very nice development. I think, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, it's really whatever. You know, you, you I think if you decide to be a writer, you have to figure out what it is you can do. Mm-hmm. and what you understand and that's what the process is and what you know what your life what life is about it's very i don't know it's it's um it's a real journey it's a mm-hmm. journey uh, it's like a parallel journey to your own life experiences and I, I want to ask you because you said that in terms of school that you hadn't really gotten much out of it or you didn't know they weren't those um Opportunities. It wasn't maybe an interesting environment at the time you went. Um, so you were learning from other people. Um, you said you, I guess, even learn from children from their approach to things. But um, what who, what had been artists? No, or I didn't learn from children. No, that's not true. Oh, my I own feelings about my own childhood. Uh-huh. I think that because I had such a, it got so bad in the uh-huh. house. I think I ha- ended up with an exceptional empathy. Uh-huh for childhood, my own, that, you know, it's about your own childhood. I don't think, listen, Mary Poppins, you know, she didn't have children, the woman who wrote that, Peel Trower, she didn't have kids. The woman who wrote Pippi Longstocking didn't have kids. Um, Maurice uh, Sendak didn't have children. They're writing about their own connection to their own childhood. Yeah, and then they have a sympathy beyond the years for the things. Yeah, no, it's what you, yeah, they're... Mm -hmm. It's the wounds that you connect with, and mm-hmm. whether you do it in a funny way or a serious... I mean, you know, Sendak, mm-hmm. it's well oh. documented. Yeah, and the, the the madcap things that he, you know... Mm-hmm. It's, right. This is really groundbreaking, because I think there was a... Uh, I think children's... Well, there was always a d- darkness that crept in with children's work, but he, right. he did it in such a wonderful, playful way. Um, but I guess I meant, uh, yeah, so if you were uh, learning um, your lessons about writing from, um, or about life from school, um, you know, where were the, who, what writers or what artists or what people, collaborators, do you feel have been important teachers in your life? First of all, I think my parents taught me mm-hmm. in their good years that yeah. I was funny and I had, you know, my 
storytelling was good. You know, the like you said, the, I never thought of the writers' room as being our dinner table, but it was sort of like that, except better. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, from a young age, I certainly was encouraged in that way mm. that I I was just rewarded for my even I mean I remember I wrote uh, I, I went to this um, ridiculous thing in high school I was on the newspaper and I was sent to do a conference of a um, about teenage marriage and I, I barely had a date you know I didn't know anything about teenage marriage and so I was I wrote this piece for them I wrote because I, I wrote that I had been married, and that was why I knew this. I mean, it was a terrible thing to do, because, you know, journalists are never supposed to go lying. Yeah. So, of course, the newspaper comes out, and there is this picture of me, and it says, Delia Efren, the first one, Delia Efren, 17-year-old senior at Beverly Hills High School, tried <laughs> marriage and found it unsuccessful. <laughs> you know, and my parents opened the paper. <laughs> and they were hysterical. They thought it was the funniest thing in the world. Now, my journalism teacher, you know, went nuts. <laughs> he sent me to this thing, and, I, you know, I mean, he was furious. Yeah. But, you know, my and, and then people started to call my parents and commiserate with them. People didn't even know them. You know, would call up and say, I'm so sorry about the troubles you're having. And, uh, you know, they thought that was just hysterical. They yeah. pinned it to the front door. They thought it was a scream. Yeah. So I mean, I was very encouraged in my in my rebelliousness and my you know crazy nature. And I, I think my parents were, were good about that. And then my first husband, my not my first husband, my husband Jerry, who I mm-hmm. married when I was about, went to New York, and then I met him when I was about thirty-five, and we were married for thirty-five years. Very wonderful writer, and mm-hmm. he taught me all about drama he taught me he he would look at myself and say you know he would just he was just an amazing teacher i i just any problem i had oh i've got these characters i don't know what they're talking about what he knew how to ask you the questions explain what what the theories of of drama were i mean he was just remarkable um and uh jerry cass k-a-s-s was his name and he he um taught me so much and then of course working with Nora that was incredibly helpful she was genius she told me a million different things that were wonderful that stuck in my head and um, uh, those were my main teachers it's great that the teachers can be collaborators or as you learn as you or just yeah. people who you know I mean and, and of course, you know I have you know my two best friend, girlfriends my mm-hmm. two besties are Mm-hmm. both writers I give yeah. them things they tell me everything that they yeah. think you know I mean we all have our you know we have our people around them but for actually learning mm-hmm. I would say um, first that I that I that I had something in me that was you know creative was my parents and then mm-hmm. and then Jerry and Nora really mm-hmm. were my you know people I learned from mm-hmm. And, and in terms and then of then there are writers I just love that yeah, I wish exactly. I could write like, which is like E.B. White, oh, my yeah. favorite writer. And um, yeah, it's it's and you probably encountered E.B. White at such a young age. It's so interesting those books that we encounter when we're, we're young that they stay yeah. with us our whole life, right? Oh, oh my God! I have a whole I have shelves of those books in my office, not in the regular bookshelves. You know, yeah. with, like comfort, oh. like you know, stuffed animals or something. 
I think it's so nice. You can you can dip into them like tuning forks for like okay, this is this is what, mm. this is uh, this is what writing is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Those moments when you forget. Well, I mean, we've gone over, so you've been very generous with your time. So I guess I should just ask you, lastly, because we're all thinking about the future, and we've talked a bit about education, but I think we're, you know, reflecting on the kind of world we're leaving the next generation, and um, so I guess you know, what, what for you? What have the arts and writing given you, and um, you know, how, how maybe how could we incorporate them better into our educational models? Well, they've given me happy. I mean, unbelievable happiness, really. I just feel so lucky that I've made my living with my imagination. I just, you know, but I don't think my education was the source of it. And I'll tell you, the tr- I think people do have teachers that change their lives. They really yeah. do. I mean, actors talk about that all the time, yeah. teachers that really change them, you know. But that was not... I think everybody, you know, every life is a fingerprint, you know, let's face it, every fingerprint is different, you know, how you're going to find your way to where you need to go, whether it's creatively or some other profession that makes you happy, I mean, that's, just being happy in the work that you do is is just, you know, a great lucky thing in life, you know, And, and I just think... You know, you have to have the right temperament to be a writer. You have to be able to be alone. Mm. If you can't be alone, you know, I don't really think you can be a writer. Or you'll be tortured. You can be a writer, but it's going to be harder. I think I've always been... Well, I mean, I have tons of friends, but I think I'm basically not someone who loves being in groups. Mm. Parties, anything like that. I, I mean... I love having dinner with people, but I don't like hanging out in groups. I'm not in book groups. I'm not, you know what I mean? Groups are not my thing. So I think school. It, it's it's about the right answer. There, There's one answer, and this is what you have to learn. And, right. Yeah. yeah, I think it's what, what your nature is, really. Mm. Anyway, um, thank you very much. Thank this you. No, fun. I want to, um, you've given, you've been so... Um, generous with your insights and it's really inspiring um, so I want to thank you Dile Efron for your stories about relationships sisterhood friendship and the smart funny strong vulnerable women um, full of heart and the sincerity you've brought to romantic comedies that remind us that if you're open magic can happen anywhere or just around the corner um, thank you for adding your voice to the creative process oh Mia thank you so much it's been a pleasure The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associated interviews producer on this podcast was Alex Barnett. Digital media coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved in our exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info.